But I invite you to open in the Scripture to Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. One of the great dangers for the American church, I think, in particular, is the danger of pragmatism. To try whatever works. Whatever seems to bring in a crowd. Whatever fills up the seats. Whatever seems to cause the most, quote-unquote, decisions for Christ. Whether it's, you know, swallowing goldfish back in the day or, or, uh, doing magic tricks in the services or pastor driving his Harley into the auditorium to start the service or like I heard one church recently giving away cars to get people to come to church. And don't sit there and think, wow, I'm in the wrong church, okay? Some people think, you know, hey, it's just not working what we've been doing. Just preaching the gospel is, is not working in our culture, in our day. People don't come to listen to that anymore. Standing for truth isn't really changing society. We're losing. So let's try another tactic, right? And I think God prepared Isaiah for his ministry in a way that guarded him from this kind of pragmatic manipulation. And he did so through granting to Isaiah an unusual encounter with himself. It's recorded in the sixth chapter. This is one of the uh, most profound passages of Scripture in all the Bible, I think. And uh, I'd like to read it together once again. Beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to ask you, would you stand one more time, please, for the Scripture reading. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, 
Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. You may be seated. Thank you. There are four elements of this encounter that Isaiah experienced all those many years ago as God gave him a vision into heaven, as it were. The Lord pulled back the curtain so that Isaiah may get a glimpse that we get all too, um, all too, uh, we just barely get it. And, uh, and, and Isaiah was given in the grace of the Lord this vision of the Lord in all of His glory. And there are four elements to this encounter that he had with God. First of all, there was a vision. Isaiah saw a vision of the triune God embodied in Christ the sovereign king of all of heaven and earth, the one whose will governs all things, the one who is utterly holy, 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 the one who is fearful in all of his glory. He saw the Lord. And then we saw last week a confession that was pulled from Isaiah's lips. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a sinner, I am unclean. And honestly, friends, that is the way every one of us must see ourselves if we would ever have a a hope for the mercy of God. And then we saw also a gracious cleansing that the Lord sent His angel down to touch Isaiah and say to him, your sin is atoned for. It's covered. This is the way that anyone may be right with God the only way, and that is to have His sin covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But we also see in this text a call. A call of God upon the prophet Isaiah for the ministry that God intended for him. Isaiah writes these words, looking back on this scene. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And first, I don't want us to rush by those words right at the beginning. I heard the voice of the Lord. Up to this point, uh, Isaiah has heard the voice of angels. He has seen this mighty scene, but he has yet to hear the voice of the one who sits on the throne. It is not until he is cleansed and purified that he is able to really hear the voice of God and now to speak prophetically to God's people. 
He will be, as it were, like Moses who went up into the high mountain where there was fire and smoke and mighty angels and the presence of God and came back down. The people said, don't let God speak to us anymore for we are terrified of His judgment. But Moses became the mouthpiece of God to the people of Israel. So now Isaiah will be God's mouthpiece. And this is not something that he takes upon himself or any man takes upon himself to make himself the spokesman for God. Oh my, what a fearful thing for any man to presume to speak for God had God not already spoken and called him to that calling. Well, here is a man who hears the voice of God calling him to this ministry. And I think you have in this text a hint that it is the voice of the triune God who calls him. For that voice says, whom shall, take a look at your text again, whom shall what? Whom shall I send? This one God who is the only God, the God alone of the universe, this single indivisible being. And yet, in the next breath, he says, and who will go for for us? For that one God exists in three persons, three subsistences within that one single essence and being. And that God, that triune God embodied in the person of Christ, speaks to Isaiah, who will go for us? He speaks to the assembled hosts of heaven and earth. And Isaiah, Isaiah's voice is heard. Here I am, send me. Which is an astounding thing when you think that Isaiah is standing in the presence of all of the mighty angelic spirits of God who are at God's beck and call. And yet, God might stoop to use a man to do this work. I mean, just think of this scene. Here is God, the the king on his throne, and here is his entire entourage of courtly attendants, and they are mighty and capable of doing anything that he wishes. I mean, his wish is their command. In fact, there's a similar scene in 1 Kings chapter 22, really almost an exact same scene when, when the Lord is on his throne and he's surrounded by the heavenly angelic host, and he asks almost the same question, who will go to do my work in the world? And in that case, God sent a spirit creature to do his work. But here is a mere human and a sinner at that who says, here am I, send me. Here is the one who just formerly declared, woe is me, I am lost, I am a man of who is unclean. How in the world? Could this be? And yet, and yet, who could be better to preach the gospel to sinners than a transformed, redeemed sinner? Amen? Who better to earnestly, earnestly and deeply proclaim the wonders of grace than the one who knows how much he needs grace? Who better of all the people in the world to be a minister of the gospel than the one who formerly said, I was the chief of sinners? For that man, when he speaks of grace, can speak of a grace that has touched him 
personally and deeply. And that is true of anyone who would open the mouth on behalf of the God of heaven. I think of David who committed a grave, grave sin of adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of another man. And then, on top of that, committed what was essentially murder in order to cover up his sin. Such a great, grave sins against the God of heaven. And honestly, the man tried to hide it for a while. But in the mercy of God, he was found out. Amen? And that convicting finger was pointed straight at him and said, you're the, you're the sinner. You're the man. And in that moment, all of the pretense was wiped away and the heart of repentance overflowed. And in Psalm 51, we have David's very own, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of uncleanness. And in that psalm goes on to say this in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew in me a right spirit. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then in the very next breath, he says this, then, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. That redeemed sinner became the sweetest psalmist of Israel, right? It was a man who knew grace, who could speak of grace. The gospel ministry is simply, as somebody said long ago, one beggar telling other beggars where they can find bread. Charles Bridges, in his classic book on the Christian ministry, said, the sense of defilement almost shuts the mouth, but the sense of mercy fills the heart so that it cannot be silent. God's witnesses are sinners all, friends. There is no pure ones. There are no pure ones that He plucks out and makes His spokesman. Everyone is a herald of the grace that first had to come to them and touch their lips. Everyone who is called to speak a word of truth and grace is called out of a place of brokenness and the need for grace. Friend, I hope that you will never get over grace, that you will always let that sense of wonder fill your heart and so cause you to open your mouth. There are people who are tempted to say, oh, I'm not worthy to speak a word for Christ. I'm not worthy to open my mouth and proclaim God's truth. And that is absolutely true in the strictest sense for every single one of us, right? No, if, if, if we went on the basis of merit alone, you would find no man to stand in this pulpit. I guarantee you. Not a single one on the face of the earth. But God calls. And God cleanses. And God equips. 
humble sinners like you, like me, to proclaim the goodness of His grace, the truth of His Word to those around. Oh, justified, ransomed sinner, proclaim the Word. Cry out to the Lord, here am I. Send me. Use me. But Isaiah's ministry would not be to people who were willing to hear. It would not be the kind of ministry that preachers envy. It would not be the kind of ministry that sees hundreds confessing faith in God. Here's the message Isaiah was given. Verse 9. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. They were to, the people would hear with their ears externally, but they would not have ears to hear spiritually. They would see with their eyes externally, but not have the eyes of their hearts enlightened that they they might know. He goes on and says in verse 10, Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And even though Isaiah would cry out, Come to to me on behalf of the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts. Yet the effect of his ministry over the course of his entire life would be to harden people's hearts. Right? Isn't that what the Lord told him? In fact, the Lord said not just that this will be the effect of your ministry, but this will be, this was the design of his ministry. For the Lord did not merely say, you will make their hearts dull. He said to Isaiah, make their hearts dull. Make their ears heavy and their eyes blind, right? Is that not what our Lord said? Which highlights this sobering truth that God sometimes punishes hardness with more hardness. He sometimes rewards blindness with more blindness. And it is important to remember, of course, in all of this, that God is not taking people, the people of Israel of Isaiah's day, He's not taking people who really want to believe in Him and keeping them from believing, right? Apart from grace, what does the Scripture say? There is in me that is in my flesh, what? No Good thing. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God, right? No, God is hardening here those who are already hard in their hearts against Him. Both Matthew and John in their Gospels quote this passage of Scripture as an explanation for Jesus' own ministry and the many who rejected Him. And John says it this way, that, that according to the purpose of God, John literally writes, Israel could not believe. Matthew, in his Gospel, quotes this same passage and says, they would not believe. And of course, both are true. 
we are talking about an inability here, but not that the people of Israel were sort of psychologically or physically incapable of repenting. The problem was a moral inability. It was centered in their wills. And the truth is that God blinds people who don't want to see. That's what, that's what was going on with Isaiah. That's what is going on anytime you have this happening. People who, he blinds people who don't want to see in spite of what they claim. There's a fascinating account in the New Testament of Jesus healing the man born blind. You remember that account? And it's just so fascinating because the physical blindness that's going on becomes almost a parable or an illustration of the spiritual blindness that people have. And after Jesus heals this man of his physical blindness, remember that the Pharisees, who were always Jesus' enemies, they are determined to prove that Jesus is not the Messiah. And their argument is that supposedly he broke the Sabbath when he healed this blind man. And so they begin questioning the blind man, remember? And they question him, and then they don't get the answers that they want. So what do they do? They go to his parents, and they begin to question his parents. And his parents are just like, hey, he's old enough, go ask him. And so they go back to him, and they question him again. And they're just they're hunting, and they're fishing for the, the, the answer that they are determined to have. And he, he gets exasperated with them. And in fact, the ironic thing is that the more they press him about what happened to him, the more clearly he begins to see who this person was who healed him. And uh, at the end, he, he, he comes to the Lord and he believes and the, he sees that he is the Messiah. And on the other hand, in spite of the increasingly clear implication that Jesus must be the Messiah, the Pharisees grow more and more determined not to see the obvious, right? It's a fascinating account. And at the end, Jesus says this, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who think they see may become blind. God blinds people spiritually by causing them to see only what they want to see. To hear only what they want to believe. It's also important, I think, to note here that God didn't harden the hearts of these Israelites in Isaiah's day by speaking harshly to them or even not speaking to them. He brought about this hardening by pleading with them to change. Right? We've already read these words. Why, he says to the people of Israel, why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Right? Hear the grace of God coming to them. And I want to assure you of the words of Jesus that whoever, whoever comes to me, Jesus said, I will not cast out. Amen? That's true. But ironically, it is the insistent 
mercy of God that actually drives some people farther away. People have to literally really shut their ears spiritually to such pleadings from God. Such hope and assurance in order not to be moved by it. And sometimes God gives to them more and more until they have grown so accustomed to the pleadings of His grace that they don't really hear them anymore. Friends, do you hear what I'm saying? Sometimes God gives to people, intentionally gives them, such pleadings for grace that they are hardened and don't hear them anymore. And that is the grave danger, maybe even for some of you, that you heard the Word of God and you closed your eyes to the truth until you were in danger of being blinded by God. Not able to see anymore. Now, when the Word of God is preached, there may be some who are in danger of never really hearing it ever again and can sit in a service and hear the Word of God being held up, but it makes no impact on their souls at all. And brother, sister, friend, listen to me. If you can hear today at all, even the even with faintness to hear the Word of God, friend, give yourself to that. Yield to the Word. I wonder how long the Lord will continue to speak to some people before it is too late for them. Before they have hardened themselves, been hardened by God past the point of any feeling at all. Whoever comes to me, Jesus said, I will not cast him out. Come, hear, see. However, Isaiah is told that his ministry will only make blind eyes blind and deaf ears deaf and hard hearts even harder. And, you know, I can just imagine Isaiah hearing from God that this is his calling. Right? Can you imagine a young preacher being called by God and God says, here's going to be the effect of your ministry. No one will listen. No one will respond. I mean, by and large, the, the nation will reject what you have to say. And Isaiah maybe thinks to himself, okay, Lord, I will speak your word faithfully. I will go on like that, but let me ask you this. How long? How, how long will, how long will I have to continue in that vein of ministry? And this is exactly Isaiah's words. How long, O Lord? And God's answer is what? They're not going to ever listen until I wipe out the land completely for its unbelief. There's going to be no change, no revival, no ministry, quote-unquote, success. But actually, Isaiah's ministry will be accomplishing God's hidden purposes all along. 
Isaiah is going to have over 50 years, 60 years of fruitless, quote-unquote, fruitless ministry. And I think God is doing all of this to prepare His to prepare his mind and his heart for what he's going to experience. The truth, of course, is that God's Word never, what? Returns empty. It always accomplishes the purpose for which He sent it. Always. Always. But sometimes God's purpose is going on behind the scenes. Sometimes God's purpose is simply to increase the accountability of those who have heard and heard and heard and heard. Sometimes His purpose is to show the greatness of His patience towards those who persist in rebellion. Sometimes His purpose is to demonstrate His utter righteousness, the utter righteousness of His judgment when it does finally fall. Sometimes His purpose is to leave men entirely without any excuse at all. You know, we tend to, we tend to say, hey, why keep doing something that doesn't, right? How many times have, have you thought that? And, 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 and that's just sort of almost a principle of life for so many people. Why do something if it doesn't seem to do any good? We tend to measure the church's success by her apparent effectiveness. And being more than biblicists, we tend to be pragmatists in the American church. And among a lot of people who could claim the name of Christ. Somebody says, well, you know, I've already tried being the right kind of husband or wife, but my spouse just will not change. It's not working. Right? I'm, I'm doing what I should do, but it's not working. It's not changing them. How long do I need to keep on going on and doing what God wants me to do here? And I want you to hear the voice of the Lord. It may be that you keep on and keep on and keep on without ever seeing any change in your spouse. I want to ask you, are you willing to be faithful? Or what about the person who says, you know what, it's no use speaking truth to that brother or sister who's living in sin. It just makes them angrier. We need to, you know, just let it go or find a different approach or whatever. Or maybe the person who says, hey, we're not seeing very many people converted through this gospel that says you have to turn from your sin. Or this gospel that says Jesus is the only way, the exclusive way to get to God. It's just turning so many people off, right? We need to find a different tactic. We need to bring in the entertainment or tweak the message a little bit or soften some of the harsh edges of the gospel. Listen, if it doesn't work, you know, you give up and you try something else, right? That's what we do. Or maybe somebody says, hey, we're losing the culture wars. So we must be doing something wrong. And maybe we are. Or maybe we're not. The true measure of Isaiah's success was not his apparent effectiveness, but his faithfulness. And to Isaiah, the Lord said, hey, it's not going to quote-unquote work, but be faithful. God revealed, I think, 
His purpose of sovereign grace among those people in order to guard Isaiah against the pragmatic manipulation of the message that God had entrusted to him. And I think it still has that effect today. When you believe in God's sovereign dispensing of grace, it has an effect of guarding the message of the Gospel. It is not ours to make people to manipulate the message so it's believable by people. It's ours to speak the truth and to rest in the mercy of God to give eyes to see to blind people. And that's what Isaiah had to do. Our situation here in America, you know, over the last, how long has it been? A few decades has seemed pretty bleak, at least from my perspective. A lot of us share that sort of sense of discouragement when we pick up the newspaper and we read the news headlines and what's going on. Could it be that our particular time and place right now here is similar to Isaiah's ministry, to his calling? That God's hidden purpose for our ministry in this time and place is to demonstrate the rightness of His judgment when it finally falls? Only God knows the answer to that question. But we should be prepared to be faithful no matter what the response, right? But this text does end with this hint of hope. And it it comes in a kind of an unexpected place. Look at verse 13. He's speaking of the people of Israel. God says to Isaiah says, you're going to proclaim the truth until the day when my judgment falls on this people and they're utterly wiped out. The whole land lies desolate. And then he says in verse 13, and though a tenth remain in it, in the land, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. Any of you ever fell a tree, chop down a tree? And what do you do with the stump in the ground? Well, you can grind it up if you have a stump grinder, or a lot of people will cut some grooves in it and set it on fire, right? Just burn it out. That's the picture the Lord is giving of the, the finality or the, uh, the, the all-consuming judgment of God upon His people that it's going to be like this um, chopping the tree down and even setting the, the stump on fire. Burn it up. And on the one hand, Of course, this is a real testimony of the destruction of Israel that only a tenth is left. I mean, one out of ten people, as it were, left in the land. The land reduced in all of its might and power and population down to a tenth. And yet, at the same time, that idea of the tenth, that has a long, that has a history to it, doesn't it? That tithe that belongs to the Lord Himself. Which begins to to cause you to wonder if maybe there's some hope here. And sometimes life does spring up after a fire. We take our kids and go to a camp in Arizona, believe it or not. (laughs) Um, And uh, we drive all that way and we get there. and, And as we're driving up the mountain to get to the camp, you see 
all of this evidence all around of a huge wildfire that broke out in that area a number of years ago. And uh, the first few years after the fire, everything was just completely black. There was nothing, there were no trees standing, there were just charred uh, stumps sticking up out of the ground everywhere you looked. But over the years, you began to notice that life is springing up out of the ashes of that fire. And every year we go, more and more growth appears out of those ashes. And some of the some of the trees and the and the shrubs that appeared to be completely dead are now springing back to life amazingly and what what god does through isaiah is by isaiah's vision is to foresee this vision this uh this future of a purified people by the fires of god's judgment to see a purified people growing out of the remnant of old Israel, a new Jerusalem that will grow, a purified Jerusalem out of the ashes of old unbelieving Israel. And that's exactly what happened. And the Lord says it this way in the very last line, the holy seed is its stump. Which recalls, to my mind, the words that we will see when we get to chapter 11, verse 1, where the Lord says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, this is the family of David, and a branch from his shoots shall bear fruit. So the Lord, through Isaiah, is foreseeing this day when a new shoot will grow out of that stump, and that shoot will become a branch, and it will grow strong into a trunk that will support many branches, and upon those branches will Come the fruit of the life of that tree. And this, of course, all is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is that branch, that mighty one that God would raise up to bear fruit to His name. And all of those who are connected to Him, who are grafted into Him, who are united to Him by faith, who will bear the fruit of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Isaiah foresees this day. He's given a glimpse of the glory Get this, friends, the glory that he will never see in his lifetime, right? He will live and die. He will minister all his days. He will preach every sermon not seeing this, except through eyes of faith, which all brings us to this by way of application to our own lives, friends. In the short term, we should be prepared to be faithful even when our message falls on deaf ears. And we might say to ourselves, well, how long? How long is it going to continue like this? How long will things get worse? Well, only the Lord knows. The Lord could grant a great revival through our witness. Or the Lord could use our witness to only prove the justice of His judgment when it falls. But in the long term, we should remember this, that God is using all of this to cleanse and purify a people for Himself. And that in the end, Christ is victorious. And that a lifetime, now I'm talking about your lifetime, your lifetime is too small a thing to judge the purposes of God. Just like Isaiah's lifetime was too small to really judge 
and understand fully the purposes of God. So what are we called to? We're called to faithfully proclaim God's truth, right? Amen? Are you with me? We don't get to choose what part of the play that we act out in the unfolding drama of God's redemption. Whether we get to sow or reap. Whether we get to blind or heal. Whether we're called to see a great response to the Gospel or to demonstrate the patience and the justice of God when His judgment finally falls. But we do know this, that we are called to be faithful to what He has given, to the Word He has entrusted to us, unwaveringly and uncompromisingly, knowing that in the end, Christ the branch will be lifted up. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Word today. And it's, it's effect on our hearts and lives. We pray that it may have the effect that You intend. Lord, I pray that this might be the Word of awakening for somebody in this congregation. Please bless it so. Let this be the Word that finally turns a wandering sinner back to You. Please, Lord, be merciful. Hear our prayers, for You are a God of great mercy and kindness. You have demonstrated again and again that Your grace flows from Your own good character and not from any goodness in those who hear. Please, Lord, yet again, demonstrate the grace of Your nature but also, Lord, we pray that this word would prepare us for the ministry that you've given to us in this time and place, whatever that ends up being. We pray that you would give us a courage and a confidence to be faithful to the word we've been entrusted. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.